what would happen if I tried to figure out what that would mean if I made a, a profession out of being creative. And it was really frightening for me because obviously I'm a math person, right? I'm an engineer and a lawyer. And the idea of me doing something creative um, and making money at it was just really very, very terrifying. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast, conversations with the artists and makers who use creativity to innovate, disrupt, and elevate. When Karen Walman was five, her kindergarten teacher wrote this on her report card. Karen is extremely adept at English and mathematics. However, she shows no artistic ability. So Karen went on to study engineering and then law, and then she became the chief counsel at a multi-million dollar software company. She worked for this big company in her very prestigious position until the work and the position were no longer enough. So she left. She quit to pursue a career in creativity, which was equal parts exciting and terrifying. Now she's a photographer, a writer, a speaker, and a coach. She's a best-selling author and the creator of the award-winning blog, Chukalunks. She's a TEDx speaker, a certified Daring Way facilitator, and part of One.org, a grassroots organization that fights extreme poverty and preventable disease in developing countries. Her mission is to help you look for and find the light. This is Karen's story from a five-year-old told she had no aptitude for art to a woman whose entire life is about making it. In this conversation, Karen and I talk about her first blog, her first book, and her first time making money from her art. Three questions to ask to figure out exactly who you are. Using art to speak up and creativity to make change. The value of diversity and the beauty of difference. When to share your creativity with those you love and when to wait. And how Karen launched herself into the paid world of public speaking and a career in creativity. May you enjoy this conversation and may it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Welcome, Karen, to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. Now, I start every interview the same, which is essentially with your creativity story as a young girl. So <laughs> tell me how creativity showed up for you as a young girl. Oh, gosh, that's actually a really funny um Thing to ask me because I would say that it didn't much as a young girl at all. I tell this story about how uh, when I was in my twenties, probably um, soon after soon after I graduated college, my dad, um, who kept every single piece of paper that had anything to do with my academics or my or my um, health. Uh, called me into his office one day and said, hey, I've got all of your report cards from everything, um, and I don't need them anymore. You're grown. You're out of school. So would you like them? And I was like, sure, why not? I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. But when I uh, when I was going through them, I found a report card uh, from my kindergarten teacher. And it, so, I mean, how old are you in kindergarten? Five? And yeah. the, the report card said, Karen is extremely adept at English and mathematics, however, shows no artistic ability <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and uh, I was like, well, dang, right? <laughs> like, like, at five? Um, and so I, um, and, and I have to, I have to think, my parents are lovely people, but I suspect that um, 
that helped inform how much creativity I had was a kid. So um, I was always kind of steered away from anything artistic. I think lest I disappoint myself, I think is what they were thinking. Like, oh, no, no, you're good at math. So um, let's not let's not think about architecture or let's not drawing or, you know, oh, that's cute, but let's do this math problem instead. So I actually literally, I, I cannot really think of much of a creativity practice at all when I was a kid. I remember, I remember doing a little bit of needlework because my mother, my grandmother loved uh, embroidery and things like that. I remember her trying to teach me embroidery and I remember doing like needlepoint as a kid. I don't know that I could do it now. And latch hook rugs is, I'm probably dating myself because it tells you how old I am. Um, latch hook rug making, I think when I was like in middle school, but like not drawing. I wasn't a journal keeper, even though I'm an avid journal keeper now. I didn't really do anything. And I ended up going to engineering school, even though I wanted to be an architect, but Everybody said, well, you know, architecture that requires art, you're good at math. So I ended up doing structural engineering um, as an undergraduate degree and then going on to law school. And so uh, creativity really did not show up until literally after law school when I finally was like, I'm going to buy myself a camera. Because even though I'm not artistic, I thought cameras are gadgets and I have an engineering degree and surely I can figure out this gadget. Um, and that's really where it began. So it's, it's funny that you asked me that question because I literally have no memory of much creativity at all as a kid. And yet it's fascinating because you were drawn to architecture. So there was this part of you, even without having spent much of your childhood being typically creative with drawing or, or painting or writing, you still were pulled towards it even though you did turn away from it because you weren't encouraged in that area. So it was, it was there. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, um, when I was in engineering school, so when I was, uh, I went to Texas A&M University and um, I was studying structural engineering because I figured that's the closest thing I could get to architecture. And as most, I guess, uh, programs are, they require you to do electives. And I thought, well, you know what, let me see if I can take any electives in the College of Architecture. And I ended up taking a year of architectural history and by far my strongest grades ever were in those classes. I loved them. I, I could not eat those classes up more. I, I literally was like, I can't believe, I can't believe I get credit for this. Like this is just so much fun for me. So um, it definitely was something that I loved and I was drawn to. Um, but, and I didn't even like history. Like history was, wow. in general, was one of my least favorite subjects. But architectural history, and just looking at these slides of artists and architects and, and trends over, basically the, the course I think went from like cave drawings to, you know, modern day skyscrapers. Like it literally went the entire history of sort of art and architecture. And I just loved, I ate it all up. I loved every bit of it. Does architecture play any role in your life right now? No. <laughs> well, that's not true. Um, Except actually, the designing of your home. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I live in Houston, and I actually we lost our home to the floods of Hurricane um, Harvey. So we are actually going to be knocking down our house and rebuilding. And uh, so, yeah, in a way, I've been looking at houses lately to figure out what it is I want to draw. But um, other, I mean, what want to build. But other than that, no, I, I don't do any architecture at all. Um, except you know, when I travel, I love taking photographs of buildings and things like that, but, but not really in any formative way. Yeah. 
So we're going to go back in time a little bit, and I'm going to reference it with a piece that was written about your book, The Beauty of Different, which we will get into. And the person who wrote the piece, Jamie, I think it's Mesner, she wrote, Karen had an ordinary life. She was a lawyer and a mom. She was good at what she did. She got to travel the world doing it. She, had, she made good money doing it, but she wasn't happy. So she soul-searched, reached down deep, and changed course drastically. People sometimes change jobs or even change careers. Karen changed course. She had a heart-to-heart discussion with herself about what really made her happy, then quit her job and blogged unabashedly about what she really liked. So begin by taking me back there, your chief legal counsel to a large multi-million dollar corporation. Mm-hmm. What was going on for you? Um, well, so yeah, I was, uh, at the time I was the chief counsel of a software company, um, that was a subsidiary of a, you know, billion dollar company, but the, yeah, the software company was definitely millions of dollars. And, um, and I actually liked it. I liked that job. Um, I liked the job I had before it more because be, what I did before was I was a lawyer, um, that, that crafted deals. Like I wrote contracts and I crafted these multi-million dollar deals. And, um, for me it was writing and I've, um, it turns out I've always loved writing. It's been, it's the thing that really sort of turned me on. And, and I would just love going into my office and putting on my headphones and just writing these contracts, which I know sounds completely boring, but I loved every bit of it. It, it was to me like combining my aptitude for mathematics with my love of language because I had to write these very complicated, um, you know, contracts that had a lot of mathematical formulas and that kind of thing in it into a way that lay people could read it. And so I, I, it was almost like translating and I loved it. Um, and because I loved it, I was really good at it. And I would ended up, um, getting promoted out of what I loved because as chief counsel, I didn't get to write those deals. Um, you were more likely, you know, putting out fires, right. As the head of, as chief counsel, which is the head of the law department. Um, you know, you're dealing with who's suing who and what I was in house. So like what employees were doing on you know, we're engaging in unethical behavior or something like that. So it, it tended to be a lot more soul sucking. Um, I, I liked that gig, but I kept getting promoted out of it, um, into things that I didn't really enjoy doing. Um, even though I was, I was good at it. Um, around the same time, uh, I uh, maybe actually right at the end of my um, chief counsel uh, gig, right before I became chief of staff for the CEO of the parent company, um, my husband and I decided to adopt. And uh, I'm originally from the Caribbean. I'm from Trinidad, and my husband is English. And so we had only been married about a year and a half, and we decided to adopt as our first choice. We did not try to get pregnant, um, and it came sort of as a shock to our family that we had chosen this, you know, um, because they of course had no idea that we were thinking about starting a family since we just sort of up in one day and said, yeah, we're going to adopt, we're going to go through adoption. Um, and because of that, I just you know, I, I remember one night I was in bed and I was like Googling things, um, you know, whatever, and, uh, came across something that the person called a weblog, um, which I thought, wow, it's it's like a diary online. That's really cool. So this would have been in like 2003, um, you know, before blogs were a thing. And I I, I emailed this woman um, 
who had started this weblog, and I was like, what, how are you making the internet do this? This is really kind of cool. And she was, she actually was a tech person, and so she said, well, I code mine, but there's this new product called TypePad, and really all you have to know is um, Microsoft Word, and you you can do it. And so I started this blog, um, the blog that is Chocolunks, that is continues um, today, and I literally was like, it was purely to kind of express what I was going through, um, specifically for our families that were in the Caribbean and were in England, um, because I figured nobody's going to read what I write. It's not that important, right? Like, um, the internet's a big place, and uh, the only reason I didn't password protect it was because um, I, you know, my our parents were old, and I was like, I don't need to add it another level of complexity to getting this on the internet so um and so i just started writing and um and ended up loving it and people ended up responding to it and so um that was that was kind of the beginning the other the other thing that was you really were working during that whole time or you had already oh, yeah. left I, yeah. no no i was still lawyering and okay. um and um and actually the the reason that i kind of thought i could do it is because um years before before i was married um, I, went, I moved to London, which is how I met my husband. And I moved to London um, with the same company. And I thought I would keep in touch with my friends by sending them, like, every, you know, every two months I'd send them an email about what life was like, like just what it was like living in London. And I was traveling all over the world and, you know, kind of, you know, funny stories of being in, you know, the Middle East or in Africa or Asia or wherever I was going. And what ended up happening, it was really funny, is I would get emails from strangers that would say, you don't know me, um, but I'm a friend of your friend so-and-so, and she always forwards your emails to me, and I love them. Could you add me to your email list, right? So I kind of, with that sort of woke, I'm like, oh, maybe maybe I'm a writer. Like, maybe, maybe I actually am a writer for something more than contracts. And so I had been doing that um, in the past, and I knew people responded. And so when I started the blog, and people were responding. I was like, wow, there, there might be something to this. So um, by the time I had made the decision to leave law, um, the blog had actually been around for, I mean, uh, probably three or four years at that point. And it had a pretty good following. And um, and I knew that that writing was something that I loved. And I had, I had picked up photography after law school as a hobby. Um, and so um, I started featuring a lot of my photography on the blog. And um, and so when I quit, I was like, well, you know, these are two things that I'm doing for no money, right? Like this is stuff that I do cause it's a fun. Um, and what would happen if I tried to figure out what that would mean if I made a, a profession out of being creative? And it was really frightening for me because obviously I'm a math person, right? I'm an engineer and a lawyer. And the idea of me doing something creative, um, and making money at it was just really very, very terrifying, but that's kind of how it started. So you did quit your job, though, with the intention of making this thing, whatever it is, you know, it was a blog at that point, you were putting your yep. picture, your photographs up online, but turning that into a business, that was the intention. Yeah, so I, I didn't want, I wasn't that interested in making money on the blog, and actually really have rarely made money specifically on the blog. But I knew that, that I wanted to do something that incorporated uh, writing and incorporated photography, and I love public speaking. And so those were three things, after I'd done all of this soul searching, um, I was like, those three things I want to do, and I don't know what that looks like. So I'm just going to keep taking photographs, and I'm going to keep blogging. And I actually redesigned the site to say, I am a person who loves public speaking, who loves writing, who loves 
photography. And if you need me for those things, come talk to me. And that's literally what I did. It was, I, I didn't decide, okay, I'm going to become a professional photographer or um, anything. And and the idea for the book that came out, the the, uh, the Beauty of Different, um, it's very unromantic, but I, I was lying in bed one night and thinking, I need, I want to do some public speaking, but I felt like the only thing I was qualified to speak about was law. And I knew I didn't really want to talk about law. Um, and then the, um, you know, the, the people, the other thing that people asked me to speak on a lot of was social media and blogging, but a lot of conferences that invite you to do that, they don't pay. And I was like, I, I need to get paid speaking gigs. And so I'm lying in bed one night and it suddenly dawned on me that people don't hire bloggers to speak, but they do hire authors. I'm going to write a book. And that's literally how I decided to come up with the beauty of different, because I thought that will, by creating a book that shows writing and photography and is a subject that I, that I, two things. One was I, I felt like a lot of people, um, hated standing out because of their differences, but loved people who stood out because of their differences. And I wanted to sort of explore that dichotomy on one hand. And then on the other hand, because I was chief counsel, I used to do a lot of speaking on, on uh, diversity and inclusion and, um, and, and that sort of thing. So I thought this is also a really lovely segue into creating a speaking um, career that are around those as well. And, and not in a stilted textbook way about diversity and inclusion, but sort of a beautiful, um, let's get conversations talking about it as well. So, um, so it was very sort of calculated how um, the, the book came about. I'm lucky that it, people responded really well to it. Um, and, uh, and the rest is history, I guess. Did, did your story of creativity that you had growing up that you were not a particularly creative person did that factor into did that hinder you in any way or by that point were you just pretty confident based on the response to your writing and your photography that you could go ahead and do that maybe a little of both I mean on one hand because people had responded to the blog and um, and to the images in the blog I felt confident enough to start but um, I also didn't tell many people when I started writing it as well. I like I didn't tell my parents. My parents didn't know um, for a long time until maybe even until I turned the book in or very close to when I turned the book in and said, oh, by the way, I got a book deal <laughs> and I'm doing this. Um, so, so kind of both. Like on one hand, I was like, well, people are responding to it. So I, there may be something here. But on the other hand, I don't want to announce that I'm doing this um, to people who have only known me as a technical person because I was afraid that they would think I was um, sort of funny for even considering that, I guess. Yeah, it was very smart because you you shared it with the people who would support you and then you you guarded any, you you kept it from anyone who may doubt what you were doing. Yeah, and, and, and I have to say, I mean, you know, God bless my dad, who is, by the way, also an engineer. He's a PhD engineering and um, and was the one that sort of found the engineering, uh, you know, story, uh, you know, journey of my life. At, after he read the book, he called me once and he said, I'm so glad you're not practicing law anymore. This is what you're meant to do, oh. which meant a lot to me. Um, 
Especially, you know, like I said, given the fact that I had, quote, no artistic ability whatsoever since <laughs> the time that I was five. So that was really lovely for him to call and tell me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And mm. sometimes that is what it takes. It takes putting your stuff out in your way and then letting the world or those who may not be confident in your decision, letting them know afterwards and then they can see, wow, you, you can do this. Like, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a good move. So let's, we'll talk a little bit about the beauty of different and the beauty of different, I saw it described this way, which is, it says constantly bombarded with messages on how to think, how to feel, how to look. It can be very easy to fall into the mindset that we somehow fail as individuals, that we are not enough. But the truth is those aspects of ourselves that make us individuals are actually the source of our own beauty, our own superpower. Now, I find that this idea is really easy to take hold of intellectually and yet emotionally, because as you say, we are constantly bombarded by these messages on how to think and feel and look. It can be a lot harder to embody, to embrace our differences and see them as beautiful when we see what our society values as beautiful. Mm -hmm. So how in your work that you've done around this topic, and you've been really steeped in it for a while now, how do you see people and how for yourself have you learned to really embrace the different as beautiful? Uh, slowly, I guess, is really the honest truth. Um, the, uh, but I, but I maintain that it is imperative for us to do and, and you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's the whole book started with like, you know, we hate generally speaking, speaking in gross generalizations. Um, we hate standing out. We, you know, we go to a new job and we think these people are nothing like me. We're, I'm never going to fit in. Or we go to the block party and we're like, my nothing like my neighbors is going to be feel really weird. Or we go to the PTA meeting and think all these parents are nothing like me. And I don't, you know, this is not who I am. Um, and we sort of, I think we can kind of hide um, and disguise ourselves in order to look like we fit in. So we dress a certain way or we um, speak a certain way or we, we keep certain things about ourselves um, secret and don't let people find that lest they judge us, right? Um, I, I mean, I just said that with, with the whole writing thing. Like when I first started writing the book, I was like, not everybody needs to know about this because um, people might think that's weird. Um, and yet, we love people like Prince or Lady Gaga or, you know, or all these people that are just kind of out there and doing, you know, Elton John, like crazy stuff. And we love them. Like we're drawn to it. And I, I was really interested in why that is like, why do we do that? Because if we love people who do that, then why don't we do it for ourselves? And so the book is really just interviews of people who I thought had something about themselves that most other people probably would be afraid to let the world know. So um, uh, the book features like my friend Jenny Lawson, who is uh, a wonderful New York Times bestselling author, um, a humorist, incredibly funny, and she talks about mental illness that she struggled with all her life. Um, and, uh, you know, I have another friend in there who's a priest and actually the, uh, he's a rector of his church. He's the head priest of his church, but he also happens to be a boxer and how he's like, no, I, I talk, he talks about boxing in his sermons all the time, even though 
most people, I think, most priests would be like, oh, I can't let people know that I do that because that's violence. And, it's, you know, it's completely anti to what I was supposed to be preaching in the pulpit. Um, and, you know, and so forth. There were, you know, there, a, a guy who was in the Navy um, who kept the secret that he was gay for a long time and how when he finally came out, how his life sort of transformed and um, led him to the life that he's leading right now. Um, and, and, and did so, by the way, um, leaving the Navy on incredible terms and very, um, very grateful for what the Navy um, taught him and where, what the Navy brought him. And, you know, he left, you know, honorable discharge and everything. So even though the Navy knew when he was discharged, he, they knew he was gay. And this was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell and everything else. So it was, um, it was really interesting to hear how these people had taken this, taken these things about themselves that uh, in other circumstances, many people might have hidden and, it turned into actually the source of great joy and great, um, in some cases, great success because they um, they stood in their ground. And so, um, so the book I don't tell people in the book how to do this, mm -hmm. but I do share the stories of people who have, and suggest maybe that it requires a little introspection on all of our parts about what is the thing that we're hiding, and why are we hiding it, and what would happen if we actually lived more fully in it. Um, and I, you know, it's not easy. You're right. It's not easy. And a lot of people have told me when I, you know, since reading the book that, oh, you should, you should write this for teenagers. And, um, you know, I, I love the idea of that. But frankly, if when I was a teenager, I wouldn't have listened to anybody said, no, go ahead. Let your freak flag fly. You know, I'd have been like, yeah, you don't know what it's like out here in teenage world. It's cruel and mean. And, and I think a lot of times you have to kind of go through sort of the growth before you can realize it for yourself that it's, it's just way more freeing to be who you are. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. And I don't, I hope I never implied in the book that it is easy, but it is worth it. Well, and it's interesting. So there's a couple different things here. One is sometimes when we see examples like Prince and Lady Gaga, and mm -hmm. we think, oh, so different means being like radically different. And mm. then we can actually feel ashamed about our quieter differences. Like I'm not different that way. And mm. maybe I'm actually not unique enough. Or mm. so I could see that that would be one thing. Cause when you talked, when you mentioned about talking with teenagers and letting their freak flag fly, mm -hmm. that at times I think we can try to be more of something than we are to stand mm. out more and then get lost in that, get lost in the bigness of the difference and yeah. the sight of what is actually unique about who we are. So there's that piece. Yeah. I'll wait to hear what you say okay. and then I'll respond to both. And then the other piece is I think we can also see, again, with the examples of like Prince and Lady Gaga, that yeah, difference is acceptable when you're successful. And until mm. you get to that point, it's just weird. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, well, I mean, so my comment to both of those things actually is probably sort of the same. First of all, you know, Lady Gaga and and Prince were weird and they, be <laughs> they became successful. You know what I mean? Like, it's not yeah. like they were like, okay, now I'm successful, now I'm going to be crazy. Like, that. you know, they were who they were. And, and and it turns out that we loved it because they were so different from what we'd heard before. For me, especially Prince. Like, I remember the first time I heard, you know, I was a kid, but the first time I heard Prince, I was like, whoa, what is, what is this? This is something, 
that kind of nods to rock and kind of nods to funk and kind of nods to blues. And this guy is like totally hot, but sort of gender fluid and sort of, you know, sexuality fluid. And like, it was so, um, it was so different that I was drawn to it. And I don't, I mean, arguably I would not have heard him until he was, until he was famous, but I feel like I was one of the early people that were like, have you heard this guy? This guy's, you know, crazy. <laughs> um, but, that, but clearly I wasn't the only one who thought that, right? Or else he wouldn't have gotten to the point where he did. Um, so what I would say, my response, well, and the reason I say my response to that, and also maybe I'm not strange enough, um, is actually to quote someone who is in the book, who um, to me, when I was interviewing her, and her, um, her name's uh, Lori White, and I, she, is, uh, she is a woman who is sort of walks in a room and commands the room, and people are drawn to her, um, and she has a cleft palate. And so, you know, how she navigated, because I knew she must have gone through life with people um, noticing the scar on her face, and yet she was so confident um, and so um, so striking. I wanted to ask her a little bit about how, how she, um, she did that. And her response to me was encapsulated in this one phrase she said. She said, you know what? I decided I was going to write my own story, and I wasn't going to let other people write it for me. And I thought, that's the book. Like, that's exactly what it's about. It's not about whether you're weird enough or talented enough or famous enough, right? Because then you're still looking at other people, right? Like other people's story about you. Um, it's about the way I am right now is enough. And I am going to show you that it's enough. And I'm going to live like it's enough. And I'm going to... Um, project that it's enough and I'm you know and and it's not about projecting in a false way it's about projecting in a very authentic way um this is who I am and uh and I really am comfortable with this I like this this is who I've cultivated myself to be and, it, and when I'm being my best self this is who it is and if you've got an issue with it that's really all about you but you don't get to have an impact on the story that I'm writing about myself, whether or not that's quiet, whether or not it's freakish, whether or not it's wildly famous or not. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, create your own story, I, I say, whatever that story may be. I'm curious with that, because I find I'm a very busy person. And I'm like, if you see me, I feel like sometimes I look like a hummingbird, just so much in flight. <laughs> right? um, but I find that to really know who I am, I have to get really quiet. Mm. Is that something that you have seen either in others or with yourself? Is that? Yeah, for yeah. sure. I think, um, I think introspection is, is huge. Um, one of the things, I mean, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a living, um, for me, it was like literally sitting down with a piece of paper and going, what is it that I love to do? And what is it that brings me joy? And what is it that lights me up? And quite literally making a list of those things. Um, of everything uh, from from public speaking to taking Elmer's glue and spreading it on the palm of my hand and waiting for it to dry and peeling it off like just from the mundane to the fantastic to the crazy and then looking at it and going well what do these things have in common with each other and for me like even the Elmer's glue thing was about looking at detail and looking at 
beauty for detail. And so that was sort of related to photography, um, you know, public speaking, writing contracts. I mean, writing contracts was all about communication. And that's something that I really, really loved. So, um, so it did require that. And that was literally, you know, a few days, like I sat down, I think probably with a glass of wine and came up with the list and then just kept going back to the list and trying to figure out what the list was telling me. The other thing I think um, is really important is being very clear on what your values are. Because I think when you're really grounded in your values, it is easier for you to be brave and to show up fully. And, uh, you know, when I, when I do talks about this, um, one of, uh, an exercise that I love to do, have people do, is list three people they admire. Um, whether or not it's people that they know in real life or if they're famous people or people who've died or even like fictional characters, Luke Skywalker or whatever, but name three people that you deeply admire. And then stream of consciousness sort of write what it is you admire about them, all three of them. And what usually people find is that a lot of the traits of the of these three people tend to overlap. You see some of the same traits in all of them. And those traits are probably your values because we tend to admire people who deeply um, reflect the kind of values that we hold dear and sort of knowing really understanding what those are to help you um navigate difficult times or times when you uh want to show up fully and are afraid to like sort of knowing those values and standing in them can be really really helpful and it's i mean it's all it's a series of choices right you're not going to wake up one day and go i'm awesome and here i go <laughs> right like like it's something that you just have to kind of choose to be authentic choose to be who you are you know over and over and over again and i will tell you it, it gets easier um but it's not easy yeah yeah it's okay there's a couple things so <laughs> First of all, I just want to highlight because there's a couple of different things that you said that I think are so valuable in being an artist or a maker. So following that path, that creative sure. path. And one is embracing the different and seeing it as beautiful and really being authentic and being authentically ourselves because from that space, of course, that's where we create our truest art, whatever that art may be. Sure. And and then the other piece, that values exercise is a fantastic exercise. I'm going to do it when I get Good. off the phone. Good. With you. I hope you do. Yeah, it's a great exercise. It's a fantastic exercise for also knowing not just who you are, but the direction that you want to move in. For sure. For sure. And what's really interesting is, you know, um, a lot of times when I've done that exercise in workshops or wherever, um, sometimes, you know, I, I will do it, the exercise along with people. And sometimes I pick the same people, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes, you know, I forget who I picked before and I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick these three people. And, but what's interesting is that the same sorts of traits keep coming up. So it, it, it's actually not as important who you picked as much as it is what those traits were. Like you will find that you know, this week you might pick your grandmother, next week you might pick, you know, Princess Leia, but it turns out that the traits are, that both of those women have the same traits that you admire deeply. And so the, the picking of the person really is to get you to the thinking about what is it that you admire and what is it you want to be. And what I think is also interesting about that, that, um, that exercise is, like for example, one of the traits that my three people always have is patience. And I have to tell you, I am the most impatient person. I'm <laughs> horrible at patience, right? Like I'm awful at it. But it is something that I admire and it is a value that I want to hold, even though it's not something that I necessarily always am. And when things are difficult to just know, you know what, Karen, remember, patience is something you value. 
how can you how can you show up in a patient way in this situation helps you know especially with parenting like yeah. <laughs> I tend to think about it a lot but it, it's um and yeah. I'm always happy once I've done it right like once you've gotten through it and you're like okay I, I stood in my values in that and even if it didn't turn out the way I would have hoped it would have turned out I I don't regret what happened because I was standing in my values at the time and I was being a hundred percent who I want to be um, in all those situations. Yes, it's beautiful. And then the third piece of what you had said earlier, Karen, was this idea of you create your own story. Don't let other people create it for you. And again, that is often vital to the person who's choosing the creative path because a lot of times it's not a path that's clearly defined and it takes a tremendous amount of courage or it can take a tremendous amount of courage. And I think that we forget a lot of times that we get to create our own story. I forget a lot. And every time I forget, I, go, I can't believe I forgot. But right. But I think we go through an entire childhood where other people are telling us the rules. So we do forget because as adults, we say, wait a second, I just was programmed my entire, all this time leading up to where I am now to follow the rules of someone else's story. And now I'm supposed to remember that I get to create my own. So it can be really easy to forget. And yet it's foundational to the creative path. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How so? You changed your story from being the a lawyer and chief legal counsel, and you went on to writing a blog. And as you said, the following grew. You're a, a writer. You're a published writer. You have another book coming out, which we'll get to in a minute, and a speaker, a photographer. What was there anything along that path that, or even now, about your story that you? are needing to change in order to keep stepping into the next level or the next part of this journey? Wow, that's such a great question. Um, yeah, sure. There, there, there's, I mean, I feel like I'm tweaking constantly, right? Like I'm, I'm constantly sort of uh, tweaking what I do and how I do and, and the purpose for what I do. I, I'm constantly tweaking that. And, you, and you'll see it from the difference between actually the beauty of different and the new book make like like there's there's different things that are um that are different and it's clearly a different um subject that i wanted to tackle um and i will say that um in recent let's say in the last year or so maybe a little maybe six you know the year and a half um i found that i'm more i even want to make more of a stand and more of a statement um with my work uh, I, uh, I've always been sort of, you know, I've always been interested in anti-racist work and anti-discriminatory work. I mean, that, you know, that's, you, you see that certainly, um, in the beauty of different and, and that sort of thing. Like there's definitely a part of me that's always, but I feel like I need to do that even more now because I feel like, um, I feel like in a lot of ways the world has sort of slipped, you know, like it, you know, racism and sexism and that, that always existed but for some reason people seem to be taking pride in it more (laughs) being racist or sexist or um you know sort of very nationalist um to the exclusion of well there's a permission for it right now and And there is the permission for it and so um so i know that i that i'm feeling like more than ever that i need to take a more activist role in my work i think before it was sort of all love and light and we're all you know kumbaya and now 
now I kind of feel the need to be like, well, hell no. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we got work to do, you know, kind of thing. And that's definitely something, um, as I think about the new year, I'm thinking about, you know, what can I tweak and change? And maybe there's more workshops or maybe there's more of a book or maybe there's, there's more um, topics when I, when I speak that I need to kind of work into that. And so, um, for sure, I'm, I'm constantly tweaking. I, you know, I hope I always tweak. I think, I think the day I stop tweaking is the day I die a little, you know, I, I think we should be constantly shifting, um, what that looks like. As you think of stepping more into this role as an activist with your art and bringing Mm -hmm. that into your art, into your writing, into your photography, into your speaking, what comes up for you around, I mean, people have an idea of who you are. You have an audience. Yeah. Uh, How does that factor into this evolution? Well, I mean, the the truth is that I think most people think of me as sort of that kumbaya person. Like, I love everybody. I don't get angry, right? Like, it, it's not it's not about anger with me. And um, and I'm angry, honestly. I'm I'm angry. And so uh, there's a lot more. And I have written a little bit about this recently. That um, you know, I actually wrote a post. I just I I wrote a post about a year ago, and um, I just stumbled across it again. Um, where I actually let some of that anger show. And it was sort of, um, you know, I've been known and people knew me to say um, that, you know, the tagline, I'm wildly convinced you're uncommonly beautiful. Um, and I, I say that I say that all the time, like, you know, I, I wildly convinced you're commonly, uncommonly beautiful. And I said, you know, I've said that a lot. I don't use it as much anymore, but I will tell you, I, I'd like to tweak that now. I'd like to say, I'm wildly convinced you're, un- you're capable of uncommon beauty. But make no mistake, if you're a racist, you're not beautiful. If you're a sexist, you're not beautiful, right? And, and I want to I kind of put my stake in the ground that says that, that I am not going to be, I'm not going to tolerate that. And if you are the type of person that comes to me because, um, well, Karen's not like most black people, or Karen's not like most women, or Karen's not like most immigrants, for example, um, and that's the only reason, like she's different, and so... I can like her, I would posit that maybe it's your definition of what those three things are that's messed up, and it's not me that's different, right? Because I am a black woman immigrant, and um, and I'm very, very proud about that because every single bit of those stories helps me become, be the artist and the speaker and the writer that I am. Um, and so you need to get really comfortable with that. Now, if you sit there and you think that, and you're like, I realize there's something messed up about that thinking, and I want to learn more through Karen's work, you know, welcome. You're my favorite kind of person, right? Like if you're trying to learn more, um, then I am here. But if you are somehow putting me in a little, um, in a little, you know, separate container, um, that's the, the exception that proves your messed up rule, don't do that with me because I'm not the right person to do that. And I was actually really kind of worried about that. And there's a part of me that worries that, um, I will end up sort of just speaking to people who feel exactly like me when I do that. If I start getting angry, then only people who share my anger will listen to me. And how much change will I actually be making if the people who don't share that anger or who have never thought about it um, start to shut me out? And so that for me is a little bit of a, a struggle for where I want to go because I, um, my point isn't to create an echo chamber. Right. Um, you know, on, on one hand, I, I don't want that to happen. Um, so it's it's a it's a strange sort of line. I, I think that I have to walk, and I'm 
like I said, you caught me off guard with that question because I'm still sort of mu- you know mulling that over and figuring out how to make that happen. Well, and it's not an obvious answer either. I don't think right. it's even I, when I interviewed Lisa Congdon, she has been pretty out there with her views for a little while now, and it's still not clear. Like there's still it it can still be murky. It can sure st- yeah, a- and I I like what you said about you. You want to do it in a way where you don't alienate those people who think differently than you do so that you're not just speaking into an echo chamber, because that is, of course, how real change happens is in the conversations with people who aren't like you, who don't think right. the way that you think. Exactly. I, I am curious, so since we're already since we're on this path, how you see being black, being an immigrant, being a woman, how you see them playing out in your art. Um. That's sort of a tough question to answer. I don't know that I have an answer to that. I mean, any more than if I asked you how being white or a woman plays out in your art. It's just who you are, right? It's yes. It, it's it, it, you know that it's who you are, and so um, you know I you know I, one of the things I do is I travel constantly, and I'm constantly um, talking about different cultures because that's the way I was raised, and I was raised in a country that has that is wildly diverse and uh, you know and I have so many races that are within my family um blood relatives that are in my family that I you know for me that's just who I am and so it sort of shows up um that way um I certainly uh I'm you know I'm I'm you know I certainly advocate for people of color and I certainly advocate um and because I am one but it's also because of the way I was raised bicultural, bi-national, I'm in an international, an interracial relationship and an international, inter- intercultural marriage. So um, it is, it just, it is who I am. And so it shows up in everything that I do. Um, you know, but I, I, like, for example, I would be, I, I do, and I've spoken a lot about, for example, gay rights, and I'm not gay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't necessarily have a a, a view on it as well right. so i you know i don't know i don't know that like it's really hard well, like i would do people look at my work and think oh that's you know typically trinidadian i you know i don't know that they do right so right but i don't think they look at it and think of anything else either they just think karen and i and um who is also international and who is also you know west indian and who is black and and if this does not match what i think a black artist should look like then maybe i hope what people think is maybe my definition of what a black artist should be is too narrow or maybe my definition of what a woman artist should be is too narrow um that i really hope happens yeah yeah and i think that it is exactly as you're saying you know it is it's just showing up as who you are and who you are is made up of a lot of different things some of them obvious and some of them not so obvious and and i i think like I know that I've thought a lot about what does it mean to be doing this as a woman and how do I want to move forward with my work in that way. And some of it is just like, it doesn't matter. I'm, whatever I do is just going to be me doing it. But it, there, the consciousness is there that mm. there is a difference. And how do I, do I want to play with that difference? How do, is it, is it something I want to, make central and if so how or or not Mm. you know i would say for me the um the consciousness that's there for me is that 
I don't see a lot of people like me doing work that I'm doing necessarily. Um, and that's, I don't mean to say that there aren't other women activists or women artists, obviously, but there are, and obvi you know, obviously, thank God. But, that, but nobody's doing it exactly like me. Just like whatever art you do, nobody is doing exactly like you. And I think that artists, no matter what background you have, need to get loud because the, the more diversity that there is out there of art and voice, the better it is, like adding to that sort of chorus of people who are saying things so that you can't help but ignore the diversity of what's being said, I think is generally a good thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where I come. I certainly don't come like, okay, I'm a black artist, so therefore my art must look like X. I don't even know what X is. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, if you think of somebody who's black, like they could be African, they could be African-American, they could be, you know, they could be, there's so many, Brazilian, there's so many different definitions of what it is to be black. And to think that a black artist must be one way is just, I mean, I think it's insulting to, you know, it's really Absolutely. insulting anymore, you know? And so I, I can't say that I really think about that. Um, as a black artist, I must do this. I will say that um, as a proud black woman, I would like that pride in how having a black West Indian culture has shaped me to show through my art, for sure. Um, that for sure, but not necessarily this is the type of art I should do. Um, I just I just hope yeah. that that's what people get from it. Does that make sense? It does. What I hear is, I, what I hear you saying basically that it's not that I'm going to try to define myself by a way that I am defined culturally or by society, but that I'm not going to hide. I won't have shame around it. I will oh, be proud sure. of who I am and then let the pride in who I am be, let the art that I make be a result of the pride in who I am. Amen, sister. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So speaking of your work, let's just touch uh, briefly, somewhat briefly, on Make Light. So that's yeah. the book that's coming out. It's your new book. And in it, you say we're all designed to make light. So what does yeah. that mean to you? Well, so I started the book because I was um, looking around uh, in my late 40s and not seeing a whole lot of people, particularly women. And, and I will say the book is, is focused on women. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of stories of women in over 40 being celebrated. I mean, it was sort of like, um, I feel like women generally get the messaging that, you know, you start to lose value over 40 years. You know, you say, as, as goes your fertility, so goes the rest of you kind of thing. You're no longer desirable. You're no longer beautiful. Um, you are too old to try something new. You're too old. And, you know, sort of this was the messaging that I kept seeing, you know, even like, you know, the, the humor was sort of this very acerbic mm -hmm. kind of, you know, deprecating humor, like, you know, hot flashes, can we talk about them? You know, like it was really kind of <laughs> bitching, <laughs> you know, kind of disguised as humor, but it really wasn't. And I thought that, and, and I felt like that was exactly the opposite of my own experience, that, that, um, that my 40s have been more vibrant than any previous decade of my life, that I've been more experimental, that for I finally feel like I've got my head on, you know, as far as career and financially and everything else. Um, 
Um, I feel more comfortable in my own skin. I feel more beautiful than I ever did in my 20s. My 20s, my God, I was a wreck. I was constantly worried about whether people thought I was beautiful enough or not. Um, and so, and and that was also the experience of my friends, right? Like the women that my contemporaries. Uh, I was seeing all these women start businesses or become bestsellers or, you know, all of these wonderful creative things that women in their 40s were doing. And so that was sort of the book was like, I wanted to experiment what it meant to thrive. What does it mean to thrive? Because I felt like that's really what was happening. Um, and so the book sort of explores, uh, you know, it seems very similar to the first book. There's lots of interviews of women and sort of talking about how they thrive as far as their mind and their bodies and their spirits. And, and just, I picked people who I felt were doing that in each of those three things, you know, so I have a chef who talks to me about food with body and I have um, a multiple New York Times bestselling author in it and, and just sort of interviewed and what I discovered, which I didn't expect to discover is even though I picked them for one particular thing, um, they also took care of the other things that some of them, even though I approached them because I thought their business acumen was just brilliant, it turns out that they nourish that because um, of how they take care of their body or the fact that they were taking care of their body nourished an idea that they wanted to give back. And so it was sort of their spirit and it was the, the basis of an inspiration. And it was all of this sort of, um, very curated lives that these women, and it's not to say that these women didn't have difficult times because they all did, but how they sort of curated their lives to be able to ride, ride out, um, these difficult times. And they did so by what I say is making light by, um, creating, creating goodness um, and having a habit of creating goodness in each of those three things so that when things were tough, they were able to ride them. So that in a nutshell is what the book's about. And I'm very excited about it because the women who I interviewed have been so generous with their wonderful stories. Um, I can't wait for it to come out. I'm so grateful that you're doing this. I'll just say I'm, I'm 46 and my husband is actually, he's 16 years older. He's 62. So I'm around mm -hmm. a lot of people who are, Actually, most of the people I'm around are older than me. And I hunger for celebration of that. Yeah. There is so much despairing talk around age. And I think, really? Like this? And I feel like it's especially women that somehow yes. men get away with getting sexier and hotter and more, you know, grounded and wonderful in their, you know, as they get older. But women are just fading. You know, it's like it's like a rose that fades. And I, and I just find that really horrifying because it, I cannot think of anything that's farther from the truth as far as my experience. And I, I, I just turned 50 this year. Um, so it was a, a milestone birthday for me. And I'm, I could not be more thrilled about it. I was so excited about it. And, um, and yeah, so I, I felt like it was needed. And my, my goal, I always say the goal for the book for me is that if you're over 40 and read it, you'll think, oh my gosh, I have my life again to live, right? Like basically, because you know, average age is around 80 before we, and that's now before medical advances come by the time we're 80. So we could all have to be 100, <laughs> right? So you get your life again to live, except this time you don't have to learn how to walk or talk or go to school. Like, <laughs> That is huge potential, right? So I hope that that's what pe women over their for over 40 read. And for women under 40, I hope they read it and go, I cannot wait to get to 40, right? Like, I can't wait to get older because look at how much is ahead of me. That that was the goal for the book. And I think with these wonderful women's stories, I think we get there, which is awesome. 
That's great. Okay, so this is a good time to go into where people can find you. Before we do, I have a couple, just two more things after that, but is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure you speak to? Um, You know, not really, except to say that, um, you know, one of the things that I constantly say is look for the light. Um, As a photographer, that makes sense because photography literally means drawing with light. So I tend to do that in a literal way for my work. But I feel like we don't do that enough with each other. Um, And that that is a lot of the way that we can get over some of this anti-sexism and anti-racism and anti-everything else that's going on out there. Um, So I will encourage everybody to look for the light. And of course, yeah, you can find me at KarenWalren.com or Chukalunks.com would probably be the best way to find me. All of my social media, you can find um, bouncing from that site. So um, I hope people will join me on this journey of, of looking for light because I think it's a beautiful journey to be on. What you just said actually was, it was, oh, that was so great because I often think like, oh gosh, (laughs) things feel really dark. I need to find more light. And I realized just as you said with photography, that's what you do. You actively look for the light and that's how you find it. It's not that it just shows up. It's the active seeking out of it. And then, absolutely, yeah. a- absolutely, and in fact, um, I am a big fan of cell phones and smartphones because if you just start a practice of looking for things that bring you joy and light every day, just a gratitude practice, it will literally transform your life. Like I, I am a strong believer in that. So oh, yes, look fantastic. for the light. Let's all do that. <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so the last two pieces. The first one is a gratitude. I have so much appreciation for you, Karen. I have tremendous appreciation for the work you're doing. And specifically though, for you, I feel so much strength emanating from you. I I felt it in your work, but hearing you, speaking with you, I feel it even more so. And I'm so grateful as to see you as this woman who is just owning your difference as beautiful, owning who you are as beautiful, and then sharing that with the world so that we can claim our differences as beauty and step into our own unique beauty in that way. So thank you for just, not just your work, but really for the strength that you carry through with everything that you do. That's a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much. It was an absolute joy to be here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And then one last thing, which is Mm -hmm. uh, the creativity habit is about making your thing. Why do you think it's important that those of us who are called to make our thing do that? Uh, Because I think art and artistry and creativity will change the world. I a hundred percent. I think um, without the artists and the creative people where would we be? That's where innovation comes from. That's where um, social social change comes from. That's where uh, it it is the savior of the world. And so, um, if you find yourself as a creative person, then um, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the rest of us to be able to express yourself through that creativity. Um, because seriously, it is it is where all good things come. Great. Thank you so much, Karen. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists and makers, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, please go to the iTunes podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Every review makes a difference. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit Podcast. Thank you for listening.